Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Victor Max Valentine. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley reporting on advocacy around medical and in medical aid medical in dying. aid in dying. <laughs> Sorry about that. Then EP reports on the lack of housing, evictions, and the unhoused. Later on, Hugh Johnson talks weather, cold snaps, and climate patterns. After that, Bria Barthel heads to the Troy Public Library for book suggestions and clarification on temporary closing of the library due to recent flooding. Finally, we have an interview with the Egg's new executive director, Diane Eber. But first, here are the headlines. Anti-poverty advocates are proposing the Working Families Tax Credit to combine several existing tax credits into one cohesive credit aimed at helping struggling families. The bill combines the Empire State Child Credit and Earned Income Tax Credit and Dependent Exemption into one solid tax credit. Supporters noted that the Earned Income Tax Credit and the Child Tax Credit have a harmful phase-in, which means that if you make very little money, if you're one of the poorest families, you actually get very little to nothing from those credits. The Times Union reports that police officers continue to be the highest-paid government employees in the Capital District, with six Schenectady officers pulling in more than $200,000. Bridge the Gap Bridge the Gap Resource. Let me try that again. Bridge the Gap and Resource and Outreach recently opened in Albany to provide support and services to struggling families. With an emphasis on youth, prevention of community violence, and emergency food, the program offers mentorship of youth between the ages of 5 to 18. The kids play games, learn about character building, and families are connected to vital community resources. The Gazette reports that the establishment of a 14-unit affordable housing development in Hamilton Hill in Schenectady is moving forward with the city selling four vacant Germania Avenue buildings to better community neighborhoods incorporated. The project is also seeking funding from the state. The St. Regis Mohawk tribe has reached a confidential settlement with Monsanto in its years-long industrial contamination lawsuit alleging the former chemical giant was responsible for increased risks of cancer and other diseases in tribal members exposed to PCBs. That's it for the headlines. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, or financial support, see the Donate button at mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390. Advocates for medical aid in dying rallied at the state capitol on Tuesday. Lawmakers have failed to pass legislation for eight years to assist the terminally ill in 
in ending their lives peacefully. Mark Dunley spoke with Corinne Carey to learn more. We're talking with uh, Corinne Carey, who is a senior campaign director at uh, Compassion and Choices, uh, both in New York and, and New Jersey. And they held a press conference recently. Um, so it was eight years since the uh, New York Medical Aid in Dying bill has uh, been introduced. Support seems to be growing, 85 co-sponsors, 55% supports in a college poll. So uh, Corinne, may just introduce, you know, what is the bill and, you know, what are some of the value of the bill? New York's Medical Aid and Dying Act would allow people who are diagnosed with a terminal illness and given six months or less to live to ask their doctor for a prescription that they can take at a time of their choosing to end unbearable suffering at the end of life and die peacefully. Um, 10 states plus Washington, D.C. authorize this option for people that live in those states. Um, several states are removing their residency restrictions. But here in New York, uh, one would have to travel to Vermont or establish residency in New Jersey to gain access to this peaceful option. And traveling when you're looking at just a few days or weeks to live is not a viable option for people. So we are we are trying to make this option a reality for people in New York. Um, and how close do you think you are, to, you know, the passion and what have been some of the groups or, you know, issues that have been, you know, blocking passage? Well, just like any major social change, um, this takes time. Uh, it took, you know, several meetings, sometimes a dozen meetings with a single lawmaker to get them to really look at what this bill would do and what it wouldn't do. And oftentimes it took a personal experience that a lawmaker had in their own lives for them to come to the table with serious concentration to read the bill and listen to the advocates. And so, you know, unfortunately, death happens and all of us experience it in our lives with our loved ones. And so there's an increasing number of lawmakers that have either had experiences in their own families or are hearing from their constituents who are experiencing, uh, you know, a loved one suffering unbearably at the end of life. And so, yes, we are making a tremendous amount of progress. In fact, you mentioned that we have 85 bill sponsors. In fact, now we have 86 because after our lobby day on Tuesday, during which uh, a woman with, with a serious life-threatening illness lobbied her own state senator and that state senator put his name on the bill by the end of the day. So, um, you know, we're, we're making progress. And I think a lot of insiders in the political world and certainly our bill sponsors think that 2024 could be the year. Well, you, you mentioned that, you know, when people, including legislators, have that personal experience, that can open up their minds and hearts, I guess, on, on this particular issue. But one of the people who spoke uh, at your recent uh, press conference was a similar member, Al Taylor. I believe he's a reverend, and he went through that personal experience and changed his mind. 
He did. You know, when when uh, when the assembly member was was first elected, we went and met with him and he read all of our materials. He had fantastic questions, but he made it very clear to us that as a clergy leader, as a man of deep faith, that he was absolutely opposed to this bill. But our campaign is all about love and compassion. And so we kept engaging with the assembly member year after year greeting him with kindness in the hallway and continuing to keep him updated. And then sadly, last year, we learned that he lost his dad. And we brought in a group of advocates on Mother's Day, mothers who had lost their children and children who had lost their mothers. Um, and they sat down with him. No lobbyists. I was not there. Uh, there was no one you know, they he just sat down and talked to the families. And he left that meeting not only committing to add his name to the bill, but also um, agreeing to be a champion and being an outspoken proponent of this legislation. And he has been uh, an incredible voice in this campaign, really cutting through the noise of the opposition and, and saying very clearly that when you're faced with a loved one who says, I'm ready to go, and I don't want to die suffering like this, that there ought to be another way. Now, we're here in the, primarily in the Capital District. Um, you know, are there, you know, state legislators, senators, assembly members who were either, you know, one of the gung-ho champions or one of the ones who, um, you know, basically are strongly opposed? You know, it's been... It, it's been a mixed ride here. I will say that Assemblymember John McDonald, who represents me, and I believe uh, the area, you know, the sanctuary, uh, where the sanctuary is, I, he has been incredible in terms of really opening his heart and his mind and listening. Um, and so I, I commend him. He, his name is not on the bill. He has not promised a vote for the bill, but I think that as a as a Catholic lawmaker, he struggles with this, but he listens and he listens with his whole heart. Um, I'm really super disappointed with Assembly Member Pat Fahey, who put an incredibly biased question on her constituent survey, um, basically intimating that the bill doesn't have strong enough safeguards. And in fact, the safeguards have worked for more than a quarter of a century in every other state, such that there have been no incidents of abuse, coercion, misuse of these laws. And then I'll also say that Senator Neil Breslin, who is such an influential voice in his conference, has has not taken a position on this. Um, and, and it's just it's very, very disappointing. Assemblymember uh, Angelo Santa Barbara as well um, has has not uh, taken a position on this. I it's it's beyond me how you can look at the faces of these family members and hear us tell the stories of the 26 advocates, people who walked the hallways, who came to rallies, who educated their communities. We lost 26 of those people during the course of these eight long years. How these lawmakers can look at those family members and, and remember those people and not have the compassion to publicly support this bill is beyond me. So we're going to have about Two minutes uh, left, so I wanted to ask a two-part question, or maybe actually a three-part. You mentioned uh, Simon McDonald, I believe his his brother now is the uh, 
head of the New York State Department of Health. You know, where has the, the governor weighed on this? And you mentioned that other states, you know, have this bill. Uh, I believe this is modeled after the, I believe it's the Oregon Death with Dignity Law. But, you know, how many other states have moved on this? And, uh, you know, is that accelerating uh, nationwide? And I guess finally, you know, if people want more information, if they want to express their views, find out more about this, how can they do this? Right. So Governor Kathy Hochul has made it very clear that this issue is for the legislature to decide. And, you know, she will make up her mind and decide whether to sign or veto the bill when it gets to her desk. Um, I am very hopeful. I think that the governor is a compassionate person. I know that she and her staff have been listening. Um, but, you know, we're going to need to raise our voices and make sure that she hears that this is a priority for New Yorkers. As far as other states go, uh, 10 states have now authorized medical aid and dying plus Washington, D.C. So that's 11 US, U.S. jurisdictions. And about 20 other states are considering bills this year. I think New York uh, is likely to be the next state to pass a medical aid and dying law. It's really just up to legislative leaders, the Senate Majority Leader and the Assembly Speaker, um, about whether they will actually bring this bill forward for a vote this year. And if folks would like to learn more information about medical aid and dying and about our campaign to pass this bill and, and actually about all end of life options that exist, uh, they can visit our website, compassionandchoices.org. They can find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, which is hard to call X, but X, <laughs> and LinkedIn as well. So just search for us at Compassion and Choices. And, and quickly, you mentioned legislative leaders got to decide to bring it to the floor. Um, neither of them are always pushing things. They kind of sit back and see how things play out. Any sense either one of them are going to make sure it comes up for a vote this year in the last 10 seconds? I mean, I will say that both of them are listening intently. They are meeting with their colleagues. Um, some of them are meeting with uh, family members. So the pressure is on. Thank you very much, Corinne Carey, um, uh, Compassion and Choices. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. To learn more, their website is www.compassionandchoices.org, as well as the social media platforms mentioned. And next, Elizabeth E.P. Press caught up with Mark Speedy of the Troy chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA, to discuss evictions, the lack of housing, and the unhoused this month uh, of the encampment in Troy. There has been a lot of news related to housing in Troy this month. To go over a few, the manager of the bowling alley in Troy threw water on an unhoused person that he was chasing away. The city broke up a tent community near Prospect Park. Most recently, the city's quality of life task force visited and then evicted immediately a tenant who had seemingly put forth a complaint about heat. And then they went on to post photos of the inside of this apartment on the city's social media. The Troy chapter of the DSA has been speaking about this and had rallied people to show up at this week's city council me meeting to speak up about housing. Mark Speedy was there and today joins me to discuss. Mark, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Great to be here. Thanks, EP. 
So maybe this is not a complete list that I just went over, but talk about housing, talk about how the city has been handling housing needs and issues from a DSA perspective. I think we've seen a very sudden and stark turn uh, since uh, Mayor Mantello took office and since she has implemented this, quote, quality of life task force. You know, she's claimed that this is something that is just intended to help our various departments work together. But from what has been posted online, the things that the Quality of Life Task Force has done has been primarily to make life worse for those who are most unfortunate in our city. Um, so they have, you know, cleared out a homeless encampment that was near the Prospect Park. They cited uh, safety issues as one of the reasons that they did it. Um, however, I think it's fair to say that uh, there's nothing that they were doing to make those people more safe by taking away their tents, sleeping bags, uh, and heating equipment right before a winter storm. Similarly, they have been uh, using code enforcement to enforce more evictions. As you mentioned, there was a Facebook post that they made essentially shaming someone for the uh, mess on the inside of their apartment when they had code enforcement had gone in to confirm that there was no heating. Um, there were broken windows as well. Um, clearly, there was a negligent landlord involved. Um, but the framing that the city has taken with these kinds of actions has been squarely to put fault on the tenants um, and the unhoused, uh, the more unfortunate people in our community. Thanks, Mark, for going into those a little bit further. That one Facebook post was one that we had heard about. People were upset about that post and the city took it down. But that doesn't necessarily mean that their policy related to code enforcement, evictions, and the such is going to change. This is not the first post that they've deleted. They also deleted posts about clearing the tent city near Prospect Park. There was another post that they had uh, made where they shared directly a post from Carmela Mantello's official campaign page to the City of Troy account. All of those posts were deleted after you know several concerned citizens said that it was wildly inappropriate. So to me, it shows that there's a pattern here where you know the city and and the mayor's administration is taking these actions that are unpopular, and they don't understand that these are not things that anyone in the city really wants. And so I would hope that maybe after some of this backlash that they might tone down their response. But honestly, I, I think what's going to happen is that they're just going to be more quiet about it. You're part of the Troy DSA. Your group organized uh, Speak Out this week at the city council meeting. A handful of people spoke, and I'm wondering why was it important for you guys to bring people to the city council meeting? Why was it important to participate and talk with our council representatives? And what was, you know, you spoke and a few other people spoke. What was the concerns that were voiced to council? The point of doing this, especially since we have a new city council in place, there's um, it's almost entirely new councillors um, with only uh, Council President Steele and uh, Member Soriento returning. I think it's important that we make an early showing of the fact that when the city does this kind of behavior, when they, they act in ways that are 
demonstrably be, be bad for tenants, for the unhoused, that people are going to show up, people are going to notice, and they're going to be mad. Those were the reasons why we wanted to do it. And I think, you know, we we were able to have a few people speak and give some really compelling points. Two of the speakers were professionals who have worked with the unhoused and were able to talk a lot about what it is that they're dealing with. There are uh, a number of things that people tend to point to when it comes to uh, homelessness, uh, mental health issues, drug abuse. And I, I think that the more jarring thing that we're seeing is that the people who are unhoused right now, the people who are in shelters or on the streets are not just people who are dealing with mental illness or drug abuse. It, there are people with jobs. There are an increasing number of seniors who are on social security benefits who are seeing those benefits stay exactly the same on a fixed income while rents continue to go up. The point that we really wanted to get across was this is not just some crisis that you can uh, solve with police. It is not a crisis that you can solve with really demonize these people for and try and say that it's their own fault. These are people who are working or have worked their whole lives who are just trying to survive and, and get a safe place to stay. What would you like the city to do instead? Well, you know, there, there are a lot of things that we could do. One of the most common things that we've heard from a lot of tenants who wind up evicted, there are people who get evicted because of code enforcement coming in and deeming their property uninhabitable. And that's no fault of the tenants generally. It's usually because of a negligent landlord who isn't providing heat or um, otherwise is letting the property fall into ruin. Currently, what happens is the city will come in and say, you can't live here anymore. And the landlord will do nothing about it. The person gets kicked out of the house and they usually wind up in a shelter. Something that we could do is provide some sort of uh, protection, pass legislation that would require the landlord to cover housing costs for the displaced tenant, at least until the end of their lease. We've also uh, seen talk about rent stabilization. It was passed in uh, Albany not long ago. New York City has it, and it would do a lot to at least slow the rising of rents that we've seen in recent years. And yeah, I mean, there's a number of other housing protections, uh, tenant protections that we could have in place. But ultimately, I think the, the biggest thing that we're going to need to do is build more housing, right? There's a huge shortage, and we can't just keep only building the luxury buildings and you know units that are for the uh, highest income members of our society, we need to be balancing that with affordable units as well so that everyone has a, a place to stay. Great. Mark Speedy, we're, we're quickly running out of time, but I did want to revisit the uh, city council meeting as, you know, it was getting to be the time of the public comment period. And one of the new uh, city council people who I believe is now District 1 representation, Bill Keel, put together a motion or a proposal to limit public speaking time to three minutes. Now, this, this struck me in the midst of the meeting. There was a vote on this. It didn't happen at this meeting, but is this something as a public we should be concerned about in terms of the potential of having less time for each individual to speak during the public comment period at city council meetings. It's a major concern. 
Bill Keel, I think being a freshman member of the council is probably not as familiar with the procedures, but it was mentioned there that this is actually, it would be illegal under New York state law. Um, under the open meetings law, public forums are required to be a minimum of five minutes. Um, the council can vote to extend that time, but it would go against state law to limit it uh, to three minutes. And, uh, you know, I think it really goes to show that at least some members of the council are uh, not interested in hearing uh, our, our citizens speak. Uh, it's really disappointing to see that uh, while so many of these members ran on a promise of transparency and accountability, some of them at least do not want to hear us speak. I was grateful to hear that Sue Steele uh, was uh, very defensive uh, against that resolution, um, as well as I, I believe I heard uh, Republican Ryan Brosnan standing up against it as well. So thankfully, they did not wind up limiting the time then. Uh, I am still concerned that they might try and pull the same thing in the future. But I, I think it's just something that we're going to have to continue fighting for. With that, is there anything I didn't get to ask you about today, Mark, that you would like to make sure our audience hears about related to uh, housing and what the DSA has in store in terms of work you're doing on or anything we just missed today? The DSA has made housing our priority this year, so we're going to be doing a lot more work around it uh, coming up soon. Um, if you're interested, you can uh, check us out at TroyDSA.org to you know sign up for a mailing list and, and learn more about what we're doing. You can also see us at the Oakwood Community Center on uh, Saturday mornings. Uh, we're helping out at the food pantry there, and we're going to be providing housing uh, support advice and uh, winterization supplies for people who need help insulating their homes. So catch us in those places. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you are just tuning in, that was correspondent E.P. speaking with the Democratic, Democratic Socialists of America on housing issues in Troy. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Victor. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOG LP 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And now we get our weekly weather update with retired <coughs> National Weather Medi National Service Meteorologist Hugh Johnson, welcome back, Hugh. Hello, Cena. How you doing? Great. I'm here with Victor. We're excited to talk to you. And, you know, anybody who's here in Troy noticed that it was extremely cold. You forecasted this last week, and you said it was mm -hmm. going to be our coldest week yet this winter. But was that a cold flash? How normal was it? And could you compare it to our history of cold episodes in winter? Absolutely. And very good questions. Yeah, we didn't get above freezing for a week. So that's a, a winter that's been so mild. That certainly grabs your attention. And we, we bomb out seven, three nights in a row, which is ooh, really cold. But, you know, and we were, our monthly average is now only three degrees above normal. But you got to keep in mind, this is our new adjusted January averages uh, up five, six degrees from what we had, say, uh, 20 years ago. If we took the same time period, I can show you, I can tell you so many much 
so much colder spells when we had a similar synoptic setup. For instance, in 1984, we were 20 below zero. That was a record low for this date. 30 Fahrenheit? years ago. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. We, we have, yeah, we, 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 you know, we used to have a lot of minus 20s. That was, in 1968, we had three nights in a row that were minus 20. I think in 1970, we had like five nights or six that were 20 below or, or more. But the last time we've hit 20 below, you won't believe this, has been 30 years ago. In the harsh winter of 93-94, we were 23 below, I want to say, on the 26th or 27th of January. There was a really cold spell right around the 20th. I remember in Scranton, we didn't get the zero. I think you guys did. And by the way, our last zero-degree high was 20 years ago in 2004. So this doesn't even hold a candle to what when we used to have really cold weather. And that's climate change. And that's, of course, the El Nino has tempered that, added a little bit of, of warmth, but Really, this is nothing compared. And before this, we really didn't have much cold weather. We had barely any days below freezing until this week. And, yeah, we got a little uh, break off of the polar vortex, and it was worse out west, like Minnesota and and down to Texas. But it's cold, and it's going to moderate now, uh, that's for sure. But climate change is is really showing its face, even with this kind of cold weather. It's just not as cold as it used to be. We know we, we, no sign of getting to zero degrees. We may not even do that. I think we've only had a handful of winters and we've never reached zero. And there's a chance we won't do it this year, although I wouldn't bet on it yet. Just clarification, you said because of El Nino, it made it, it tempered it a little bit. So if it was yeah. La Nina year, it could have been really a lot colder. Is that what you're saying? A bit, a bit colder. A okay. bit colder. But I think, you know, again, we got to consider what's really going on. The CO2 just keeps pouring in the atmosphere. We've reached over 420 parts per billion. We're still, that number is still going up. It's not going down. And we all know until it goes down, we're in trouble. That's all there is to it. And what, is, what do you expect for the rest of winter? Well, what I expect is, well, it looks like, uh, well, we'll get into the short-term forecast, but we are going to see a pretty good warm-up this week. I'll be, and it'll be ugly because it'll be including with clouds and, and precipitation. And then it looks like it stays pretty mild uh, right through the beginning of February. But there is another stratospheric warming event, which basically means the stratosphere near the poles is warming. It, it weakens the, the westerlies. They reverse it to easterly, a more blocking the atmosphere, allows the polar vortex to weaken and perhaps sink south again. And I expect another shot of that in February that might be a little longer lasting than what we've seen in, in January. And if you look at the other El Nino winters, with the exception of one or two, that's exactly what happens in February. It actually turns cold. Our coldest month of, of the year during a, an El Nino is usually February, not January. So I think that will happen on cue this year. Now, we'll see. We still have a very active Pacific jet. If we can interact that with the Arctic air, we could still get some pretty darn big snowstorms. We missed out in this round. We got some snow, but... A lot of it went south. D.C. actually has more snow on the ground right now than we do uh, because a jet stream was suppressed south and we didn't have a real phasing of the polar and subtropical jet stream. Maybe that will happen in February. But anyways, I do expect it to get colder and somewhat snowier into early March before it warms up again. Hugh, uh, I'm curious, how many people have you encountered who still believe our weather patterns are merely the natural progression of the planet that has occurred for millions of years, as opposed to realizing that it's global warming? More people than you, you would expect. I mean, I, don't, I can't give you a scientific, there are scientific analysis, but 
in my own family, in my own family, I got people who don't believe this, that climate change is, is all is done by CO2 emissions in my own family. And, you know, I, I know people in my circle on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, uh, emails that do, I still deny. It's, it's, you know, say people say everyone's on board. That is not true. There is a strong resistance, and we know it. We know what's going on out there. I'm not going to get political, but you can do the math. You can figure it out. And it's really a very divided situation, uh, I'm, I'm afraid to say. So um, I'm concerned that we're never really going to see the changes we need. I mean, we've done, we've done we've gone the right direction with this last administration, but I don't think far enough. And the pendulum may swing back again. Let's hope not. <laughs> and, and how does a meteorologist detect which weather patterns, if there are any any longer, uh, are due to temporary shifts and as opposed to the planet systems off balance due to our negative influences? That's a very good question, and I'll try to answer that as quickly as I can. Well, you know, we have seen a little weird, a little more erratic behavior in the jet stream, the polar vortex. Um, and again, just as I was telling Tina a few moments ago, yeah, we're in a cold spell, and people, you know, I'm not crazy about, but when you compare this synoptic setup to, say, 20 or 30 years ago, we would have been a lot colder than this, I'm telling you. We would have been below zero with snow on the ground. It would have been, it would have been below zero. That would have been a slam dunk. And we're not getting that. So there, this is, to me, a real sign of change. Now, yeah, we're getting milder winters, and I'm okay with that, but there are a lot of concerns. Uh, I was um, having a lunch with a meteorologist today who says the pine cones, there's a pine cone uh, infestation because of the hot summer two years ago and, the, and then the wetness and all that, and, there, and there's more pine cones than anywhere around. Okay, that probably won't cause any real problems, but it's just all these ecosystems all this stuff is getting is getting really messed up. And I think we're going to see more and more of that as time goes on because the handwriting's on the wall. I mean, climate change is real, whether people believe it or not. There's a lot of people who don't, but we know it's real. We have about two minutes left. Uh, okay. What is a climate policy that you would like to see in our government that would make a, that real difference for you without spending too much time on it? Real quickly, I'd like to see fossil fuels cut in half by 2030, or we're, we're, we're game over, game over. And, and that's what the CO228 was theoretically doing, but whether that happens or not, we can't do it too quickly because it'll cause, it'll probably cause a recession, but we got to accelerate it. So we got to accelerate using less green, I mean, fossil fuels and more green gas emissions. Thanks, Hugh, for joining us once again. We look forward to One talking. Moment. Well, let's get our forecast for the week ahead oh. <laughs> before we let you go. Okay. All right. Good and bad news. We warm up, and bad news is a lot of clouds, very little sun, and we're going to have bouts of precipitation. A little snow tomorrow, maybe an inch or two, maybe three in a few spots. A little icing. That's right, icing, freezing rain uh, by Wednesday morning. It shouldn't be a big deal, but it could be enough to cause slickness of driveways, you know, people falling on their butts, that kind of thing. Watch out for that. And then we get warmer and more rain Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We might touch 50 degrees by Friday, so this snow could be gone. And then we'll cool it off a little bit on the weekend. But we got another storm on Sunday that could bring either rain or snow. We just keep getting storm after storm, and that's part of the El Nino package. So we might get melted snow and then through the rain and then get some more snow. Is that what you just said? Rain or snow on sun- Sunday. Sunday's still too far. I mean, the thermal profile is very borderline. All right. So, you know, we just have to see how it goes. It doesn't look like it'll be a huge snowstorm, but it would, could be something yet. 
Thank you so much, Hugh. We look forward to talking with you next week. Well, well, actually, next week I'm going to be in Hilton Head, but that's okay. That's right. I will probably talk to you in two ah. weeks. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Hugh. All right. Have a great night, everyone. You too. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. And next we hear from Brie Barthel about three very different book recommendations by Michael Gregg, Library Associate for the Troy Public Library. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm talking with Michael Gregg, a library associate at the Lansingburg branch of the Troy Public Library, but we're meeting at the main branch. Michael, why are we down here instead of in Lansingburg? Well, first of all, it's good to see you, Bria. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the big storm that we had a few weeks ago, the Lansingburg branch experienced a pretty terrible flooding event. Um, and we will be closed for the time being while we make repairs to the building. Um, so all of our staff is currently operating under the main branch. And I know that um, your colleague was saying that the children's area got especially hit? The room is basically divided into two parts, and the entire children's area is what has experienced the flooding, yes. That's a shame, because you guys just redid that area recently. We did, not even six months ago. We put in a brand new carpet, brand new shelving units, a bunch of furniture. Yeah, it's it's an unfortunate drag, but we are looking forward to being operational very soon. Okay, so despite the problems, you're here Ernst is here, and we are going to hear about a couple books you suggest people read. What's the first one? So the first book I'd like to recommend, I've read a couple years ago, and my girlfriend is currently reading. It's a sort of a show business memoir, but not kind of the price of fame horror story showbiz memoir that has been coming out a lot recently, like the Britney Spears book, or uh, Spare, or I'm Glad My Mom Died. This is um, Satan is Real by Charlie Leuven. He was one half of the Leuven Brothers, which was a legendary country duo in the 50s and 60s. They're probably best known for like their close harmony singing. They were like a real pioneer of like two voices moving closely, and they influenced a lot of your modern day like country folk and Americana artists. And this memoir charts the rise and fall of the brothers' partnership, largely due, at least in the telling of Charlie Leuven, who wrote the book, to his brother and partner Ira's alcoholism and boorish behavior. But I don't want, this book is a hoot. Um, it really feels like you've pulled up a chair at a bar and initiated a conversation with some old guy who's got the greatest stories to tell. So it kind of starts, you get a little bit on childhood, and then it charts their rise through playing all these tiny halls to bigger halls. And he's, he interacts with every famous country music person of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and he's got a wonderful story for every single one. It is laugh out loud funny. It is a little dark at times with some of the content uh, that his brother brings to the table. But it's just a really great, juicy, gossipy show business memoir. It reads like a breeze. It's very conversational. And you'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll be done with it in an afternoon. I was looking at the cover of it, and it has a backdrop of a red Satan and fires and then these two guys in front of it. I had never heard of the Leuven Brothers, uh, but it says the most influential harmony team in the history of country music. Do you think this is something, I know you're a musician, Mm -hmm. do you think this book is something that people who aren't musicians might still appreciate? Oh, absolutely. I want to stress that it's a rollicking show business memoir as much as it is about uh, the music industry. Um, And yes, I will say it's got a very interesting cover. That is one of their album covers. 
And I think that's why you've never heard of them before, is they, they had a focus on religious music for a while that I think makes them a little unpalatable to today's audiences. Um, maybe unpalatable is the wrong word, but a little out of fashion. But the music is beautiful. But when it comes to the book, it is just a, a real great ride of a show business memoir. And like I said, it's breezy, it's fun, and you will enjoy the read from start to finish. I love the words breezy, fun, and enjoy. Before we started taping, uh, Michael and I were talking about how everybody has had a pretty grim December, so this is a good idea. And the next book? Well, I did say to you that I was starting, I was trying to bring some light, easy reads, but this next book is called The Skull. Um, but it is, it's a children's book, but I think it is very appropriate for adult readers either. It's kind of hard to categorize. Um, it can be enjoyed by adults with kids or without kids. And it's not really a chapter book. It's a picture book, but it's very long for a picture book. And it sort of reads like a fable. Uh, John Klassen is the author, and he's probably best known as an illustrator. He works with a lot of today's most in-demand uh, children's authors to illustrate their works. But he's also pretty famous for his Hat trilogy of picture books. Um, any parent is probably familiar with, I, uh, what is it, I Want My Hat Back, and We Found a Hat. They're great as well. Um, but this reads sort of like a darkly tinted fairy tale, and it tells the story of a child fleeing some kind of unknown danger, and she stumbles upon an abandoned mansion and forms sort of a friendship with the mansion's only resident, a talking disembodied skull. It's adapted from an Austrian folk tale, but Klassen has kind of taken out all of the details and really pared down the story to its essentials, which I think really helps the narrative. Um, and he does these beautiful watercolor illustrations that both contribute humor and pathos to the telling of the story. I, I think it's really beautiful both, you know, visually and prose-wise. So we've got a yin and yang here of Satan is real being laugh out loud funny and the skull sounding a little, little uh, scary. I, 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 I want to caution that it's not a grim tale. I mean, it, you know, it stars a skull, but it's not a particularly grim tale. Um, but the skull is smiling. Yes, the skull, well, as, as smiling as a skull can be missing a lower jaw. Um, but it, it's a great story to read with, with your children, but I think lone adults will be drawn in by the art and touched by the story. Um, and since we're in a library, I would like to plug the fact that uh, Klassen was inspired to write this because a librarian just pulled a book off the shelf and said, I think you'll like this folktale. Uh, and I think that speaks well to the job that we do here at the Troy Public Library, inspiring authors all the time. That's great. Okay, so as uh, Michael first pulled out the books, I, I saw Satan is Real and The Skull and said, you know, this is not October, right? <laughs> the next one, the title isn't quite along this. Possibly scary, but it's still a little eh, not pick-me-up. <laughs> Our next book is called The Stench of Honolulu by Jack Handy. Um, so when I was prepping for this, I was going to recommend Werner Herzog's new memoir, which is titled... Every Man for Himself and God Against All. And I do highly recommend Werner Herzog's new memoir, but I thought it might be a little too dour for the proceedings today, as we've all had a rough December. So I thought I'd, be, I'd pick a comic novel. Uh, listeners may remember the name Jack Handy from Saturday Night Live in the 80s and 90s. He used to have those deep thought segments 
Um, but I think you'll be surprised to learn that he's a real person, uh, not just an invented, even though that's the silliest name in the world, Jack Handy. <laughs> and since retiring from Saturday Night Live, he's become a prodigious author. And the stench of Honolulu, I would say, is kind of his magnum opus. It's a rollicking fever dream of a novel, I guess is how I would describe it. Um, it follows this unnamed narrator who's sort of this idiotic, narcissistic, lightly psychopathic person who's going on a vacation to like a horror show version of Hawaii. I'm sorry, can we get that description sure. of that character again? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, an idiotic, narcissistic, lightly psychopathic narrator. How about that? Which we can all relate to. Absolutely, yes. Um, a plot is really a secondary concern for the novel. It's really... Um, the, the plot is a way to string along an incredible and insane collection of jokes and bits that uh, just bl you will blow through these 200 pages and your stomach will hurt by the laughing that you do. If it's okay, I would like to read a quick selection from this one to give readers a sort of flavor for Jack Handy's sense of humor if you don't remember him from Saturday Night Live. Sounds good. We have about 60 seconds. Okay. Uh, Don made me swear on the Bible to keep the whole thing secret. I went and got my Bible. Inside, I had carved out the shape of a gun in the pages. That's because if I ever get a gun, I'm going to hide it in there. If I'm at home when a burglar breaks in, I'll say something like, is it okay if I read my Bible while you're robbing me? <laughs> Who's going to say no? That would be crazy. And then I'll open the Bible to the Ten Commandments to say, thou shalt not. And when the burglar says, thou shalt not what? I'll pull out the gun and kill him. <laughs> okay. So those books again are Satan is Real, The Skull, and The Stench of Honolulu. That was Michael Gregg for Troy Public Library, usually at the Lansingburg branch, but today from the main branch. Do you have an idea of when the Lansingburg branch might reopen? So I cannot give a date or really a timeline, but uh, sooner rather than later. We are, work is being done as quickly as possible. Quick response is hard at work repairing the building, and I hope to be in there as soon as we possibly can. Okay, thanks a lot, Michael. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I like that Michael Gregg described a book as your belly will hurt from so much laughter. Sounds like we could all use a little bit of that. And to f find the list for all the books in this uh, interview with the Troy Public Library, that's along with this episode on our website. And you can mind find more at thetroylibrary.org. And we end tonight's program with an interview with Diane Eber, the new executive director at The Egg. The Egg, the Empire State Plaza Center for the Performing Arts, announced back in September 2023 that it finalized its search for a new executive director to lead the organization after 23 years of leadership with Peter Lesser. Coming in with 20 years of experience in the arts and leadership at BRIC, an incredible arts and media organization in Brooklyn, Diane Eber is the new executive director at The Egg, and you join me now. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So excited to meet you. I'd love to begin with you introducing you and your experience to our listeners. Sure. So I'm Diane. I grew up outside of Rochester, New York, so I'm upstate New York through and through. Um, 
at my core, I'm a music nerd. You know, I was raised by two musicians, started on the piano, was very serious classical clarinetist, you know, toured Germany in high school. Um, and then discovered this world in college. I went to Vassar, you know, right here in Poughkeepsie, and discovered the joy of putting together an artist with an audience. Like, I'll never forget the first show I ever booked. I was at Vassar, and it was with this jam band, the Motet. I saw, actually, that they played Lark Hall recently here in Albany. But that incredible feeling of, like, the artist is so psyched to be there. They're so grateful to have an audience. And all those humans dancing in a room and the energy bouncing off the walls. And I really was able to combine my, like, deep musical love and knowledge with this world. And I was like, wait, could this be a job? Can I, like, go to shows for my job? And, um, you know, it was just on a path. So worked at a booking agency, worked at Warner Music Group. Um, and then took a big pay cut to go work at Celebrate Brooklyn. Um, I just loved, you know, if you're not familiar, Celebrate Brooklyn is an incredible outdoor music festival right in Prospect Park. Also been around for 45 years, which is amazing, similar to The Egg. Really incredible audience, incredible connection to the community. And when I heard about this opportunity at The Egg, I was so intrigued. Um, my family and I moved upstate in 2020, like half of Brooklyn, <laughs> um, and we love it here. And I wanted to put my energy upstate, and the Egg is such a unique building. I mean, truly, I took the job because it has no straight walls. Everything is curved. And when I think about that as an artistic grounding place for artists to respond to and curatorially, what that means is really exciting to me. You said that you have a passion for bringing life-changing artistic experiences to audiences around the world. How do you do that? Can you walk us through like hearing being that music nerd and bringing it to the stage to a performance? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's years of building a network. You know, people do say like music industry, performing arts world is so much about network and and that's true, right? So if I'm thinking about an artist or something, usually I know the booking agent or you find them and you kind of do your research and you find out, you know, a really important part of my job as a curator is it's it's not just what I like. It's, okay, what does the community need? Who's coming to this? How do we make that connection? What can this artist say to the world that maybe isn't being said, needs a space for? And then you got to do the research. You know, how many tickets is this good for? Is this going to be like you know, two people come to the show, like, okay. And I'm a big believer in artistic risk, right? Like sometimes you do have to book the boundary pushing show that may not be a sellout, but you are taking that risk. And sometimes those risks result in beautiful things. And sometimes you're like, yeah, okay, that was a miss. Um, but, you know, it comes down to money. Can you afford the artist? What's the ticket price? And you're putting out deals, you're negotiating with agents. And, and building that audience, you know. I mean, the egg is also so unique because there it is on the skyline. You can't miss it. It defines the Albany skyline. And so there is this awareness of the egg that's really a gift when you think about it from a marketing, reaching audience standpoint. Like, there we are. We're hard to miss. So check us out. And that's exciting, too, and really unique. Um, you know, and Peter built an amazing legacy. He was there for 23 years and was also a very deep music head. Um, and so I'm very grateful and just lucky to be building off of that. 
So at the Sanctuary, we focus on a lot of global music, particularly the African diaspora, and celebrate Brooklyn, as we mentioned, from Brick. Also very much brought in a large global audience. Can you talk about finding a global range of music and bringing them to celebrate Brooklyn, but also your plans to do that at the Egg. Yeah, sure. I mean, at Celebrate, it was amazing. Outdoor festival, free, no tickets. Mm-hmm. So the barrier to entry was really low, but we brought all the greats, you know, Yusu Endur, mm. Habib Kouate, Umu Sangare, Angelique Kijo, Lady Smith Black Mambazo. I mean, and a lot of these artists have either played the Egg already, have played Troy Music Hall, they've been here. And it really is, so much of it's about audience and also, I mean, I was just in the city at Global Fest at Lincoln Center. That's a great resource to see new artists. Saw a bunch that I'm like chomping at the bit to book and bring to the egg. But you have to be mindful of just because you were blown away by their performance doesn't mean people have heard of that artist and that they're coming. So I'm always thinking about how can I ensure there's an audience? How can I ensure that if I'm going to put this artist on my stage, our stage, that it's going to be a good experience. And so it's it's sort of a push and pull of, yeah, okay, you may love this artist, but nobody's coming. <laughs> or, you know, uh, this artist might be great and sell a lot of tickets, but it's not quite what you want on stage. So in terms of world music and global music coming here, I also think there's a really interesting conversation happening around the word world music. <laughs> it's It's sort of we need a new word <laughs> um, and 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 thinking about that and how we talk about I like actually your approach of global and thinking through that and what does that mean and and I need to listen right I'm new I just came in September so I need a really good sense of what does the community here want what you know what's missing what what do we need and where are those pockets so that we can make sure we're reaching them too once we do put those artists on our stage one thing i'm really aware of is um there's an indian community here that rents our space a lot and i want to program for that you know i worked really closely with brooklyn raga massive putting classical indian music pairing it with other art forms. And I played around a lot with that at the band shell as well at Celebrate Brooklyn. So I think that might be an interesting way to build some of those connections. What exactly do you want to give as a fresh take on being executive director of The Egg? Yeah, I think it's about building our curatorial voice. When I look at the programming right now at The Egg, we do a little bit of everything, which is amazing. But I really want to define what our voice is, and I'm going to use the building, like come back to that, right? When in doubt, what is the egg? Why is it special? What is unique? And it's our building. We, you know, go back to even the elevators are rounded. And so artistically, we need to be a space for creativity to flourish, a space where we incubate new projects, a space where artists cross boundaries and collaborate and try new things. And when I'm thinking about who's the headliner, I'm also thinking about who's going to frame that artist in an interesting way, whether they're local or just a different type of music that we're pairing it with. I, One of the first things I did is um, our lobby had no music. So when you would go up to the egg, it would just be silent before the show. And I look up at the ceiling, I'm talking to our production manager, and I'm like, do those speakers not work? And he's like, oh, no, they don't work. Haven't worked in 20 years. And then they turned them on and they did work. And so like with a very small investment, we were able to actually replace all these speakers. And we had a family show for students yesterday and we turned on Coltrane. And so as the kids were leaving the egg, 
we were tricking them into listening to Coltrane, you know, and my favorite things and like building the experience of the moment, honestly, you get in your car or you get on a bus or a train to come to the egg, that's when your night starts. So thinking through that experience, I want to activate the entrance on the plaza. I wouldn't say I've figured out how yet, but I want people to come to the egg and have a whole experience and that goes beyond just what you see on the stage. Diane Eber, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you about <laughs> Thanks. coming into the egg. Have I forgotten to ask you anything or would you like to leave our listeners with anything? I would like you all to follow us on Instagram, on X, on Facebook. Um, we're really trying to use that as a voice. Sign up for our newsletter. Engage with us. You're going to be seeing a lot more programming roll out this summer and fall. Also want to hear from you. What do you wish always happened at the egg? I'm very much in a listening mode and um, I'm just so excited to hatch the egg. Let's do it. Thank you so much. That was my interview with Diane Eber, the new executive director at The Egg. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Victor McValentine. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Bria Bartel, and myself. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider it a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And now is a perfect time to start uh, a semester as an intern with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine or the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Victor, that's how you got involved. You did some great work in our archives and producing some work. So if you're interested in becoming a volunteer at our homepage, mediasanctuary.org, we have a uh, how to get involved tab. Um, and then there is some details on some internships, but to reach out because we want to hear from you through email, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag. Our email is hmm at mediasanctuary.org. And tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to our listeners, you make all of this worthwhile.